You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, In this series, we are looking at the major world religions that have shaped the history of our world. One of the common ideas out there right now about these religions is that they're all basically the same. The thought is it's just a matter of semantics. So one religion calls God Allah, another calls God Brahman, but it's kind of like the words yes and see. They describe the same thing. They're just different cultures, different languages, communicating the same idea. And so which is the right way to to say it, yes or see? Well, neither is the right way. It's just a different way of saying the same thing. And that's the thought about religions now. Well, what about these two words? How about the word dog and casa? Are those the same thing? No. I mean, again, you have two different languages, two different cultures, but in addition to that, you have two very different ideas. So whenever someone says that all the religions are the same, I automatically know you don't really know what they say. Because these are not just different languages or different terms. They're describing very different ideas. And so we are looking at these differences in this series. And we're comparing those, these differences to uh, the Christian faith. And the purpose of this series is to help you anchor your own faith. If you don't know what other people believe about God, then whatever you believe is pretty much untested and therefore not that stable. Now, the fastest growing religion in our nation is the nuns. Not the nuns of the Catholic Church, but the people when asked to identify their religious affiliation put down the word nun, N-O-N-E. So it's not that belief in God is on the decline in our nation. It's that people are less willing to make any commitment to any particular idea about God. With the rise of globalism, the religious streams of thought for some time now have been crossing uh, the boundaries of geography that used to confine them, and they're finding their ways into the minds and hearts of many different people. The result is more people are making up their own religious recipes. So they don't want to identify themselves as anyone because they've taken an idea out of the Bible that they really like, and they've taken an idea out of Hinduism that they like, and they take one of their favorite ideas out of Islam that they like, and something else that a friend said that they like, and they combine all those together, and that forms their idea about God. The advantage of that is that if something is going to make a commitment on you, it's going to require something of you, you can just reject that. So you don't have to commit to anything. You can just keep adjusting your God recipe to fit what you want. But if God is in fact real, we can't make him up. We can't add a recipe together and say, this is my God, because if God is real, he is real. He's not yours or anyone else's. And so we're looking at these different ideas to help us understand who God really is. Now, there are two springs that have produced the streams of thought behind the major world religions. And these are the two streams. The first one comes out of India. This is the major spring that has produced all of the Eastern religions that we're going to talk about today. Hinduism was the first religion to emerge in this region. Uh, Hinduism has no founder. In fact, the word Hindu is a Persian word uh, that means Indian, and it was given by the Muslims in 1200 AD, and so that's how this became known as Hinduism. And not only is there no central authority, there's no founder, there's no central book of authority on this uh, religion. 
There are texts, there are Vedic and Upanishadic texts that date around 800 to 600 BC, but no Hindu considers these to be necessarily authoritative. They're informative, but they're not authoritative. And then in 600 BC, Siddhartha Gautama founded Buddhism, and it came out of Hinduism. He is called the Enlightened One, which is what the word Buddha means. The Buddha is the Enlightened One. And so this is the stream we're going to look at this morning, but I want to identify quickly the other uh, spring that the other world religions came out of. And this second spring is Abraham. Abraham claimed to be uh, the one who encountered God, and God chose him to be the founder of his people. And these people are commonly known as Jews, and this is where Judaism comes from. The word Jew comes from uh, probably the most famous of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah. And that's where you get Judaism or Jewish people. And their authority is the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Christianity followed with the birth of Christ. He was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And this added the New Testament portion to the Bible. So as Christians, we believe both in the Old Testament and the New Testament portion of the Bible. And then in 610 AD, Muhammad claimed that the angel Gabriel revealed the Quran to him. And this was the beginning of Islam. And we'll look at this one in a few weeks. Islam really has three major prophets, Abraham, Jesus, and Muhammad. Muhammad is the, the most authoritative and the most important prophet, being the most recent prophet for the followers of Islam. Now, common to all religions is a question. They're all trying to answer a question. And the question is, what's the problem? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with this world? Every religion agrees that something is wrong, because it clearly is. Something is clearly wrong with us. We, we all kind of have this sense that we should be doing better than we are. We all carry some level of guilt with us. And the question is, why? What's, what's gone wrong? What's happened to us? What's, what's the problem with us? I read a couple of weeks ago in the Orange County Register that here in Orange County, the budget for mental health is going to be increased by $1 billion over the next three years. $1 billion. Clearly, something is wrong for us to spend that much money on mental health. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but clearly something is wrong with us. Everyone knows this. And not only is something wrong with us, there's something wrong with the world as a whole. We are continually shocked by what we hear about going on in different parts of the world and in our part of the world. So this is the major question that all world religions try to address. What's wrong? What's wrong with us and what's wrong with our world? So we begin today by looking at the problem and the answer given by Eastern religions. But first, a brief history before we look at the, the problem and then the answer. Eastern religions originated, obviously, in the Eastern world in places such as India and China, Japan, Southeast Asia. And here they are, Hinduism it was the first and is the conceptual foundation of all Eastern religions. And these are some of the, the major Eastern religions, uh, Jainism, Sikhism, Shintoism, Taoism, Confucianism. And the most influential in the West, of course, is Buddhism. It's estimated to be about 4 million followers of Buddhism here in the U.S. Uh, and it gets a lot of attention because there's a large number of celebrities that would consider themselves to be Buddhists. Uh, here in the West, the, the kind of the westernized version of the Eastern religions often goes by the name the New Age Movement. Now, there's no way, kind of a little disclaimer here before we get into this, there's no way for me to fully cover any religion in 30 minutes. 
Um, to be honest, I wouldn't trust a Buddhist to summarize the Christian faith for you in 30 minutes. Uh, I am going to do my best to be accurate and fair, but I'm just telling you up front, don't trust me. Not because I'm trying to trick you, but just don't trust me. You know, if you have questions, look it up. Look into this for yourself. I'm trying to represent honestly what these different religions teach. Now, as I said, Hinduism has no founder and no authoritative book. It really is a series of traditions and practices that come out of a common view about the nature of God. Eastern religions are pantheistic. That's what they, they think about God. And here's what that means. The word pan means all, and theism, of course, means God. So pantheism is the belief that God is everything. You add up everything that you see and everything that you can't see, and the sum total of that is God. God is everything. Now, this idea was popularized by the description of the Force in the Star Wars movie. I'm going to show you a clip, and in this clip, uh, Yoda gives, I think, a pretty good description of pantheism to Luke. So let's take a look at this clip. This will help you understand pantheism. And where you should not, for my ally is the Force, and the powerful ally it is. Life creates it, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings shall be not this crude matter. You must feel the force around you. Here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, even between the land and the ship. So, for the Hindu, there is no all-powerful personal God who created us. Ultimate reality is impersonal, an impersonal oneness that permeates anything. It's more like, as Yoda said, it's more like an energy. It's more like electricity that we, we kind of learn how to use, and if we learn well, then it can benefit us. If we don't, then it can't benefit us, and we try to cooperate with it. The Hindus call this impersonal force Brahman. Now, if you travel to India, you will see the images and the names of all kinds of different gods. By some estimates, there's around 330,000 gods within Hinduism. So how do you go from being an impersonal, everything kind of being, to 330,000 specific deities? Well, it's because Hindus believe that the impersonal Brahman can take on different human forms to guide us, and these are the gods. So we're more familiar with Star Wars than we are with classic Hinduism, so I'm going to reference them. In Star Wars terms, Brahman is like the Force, and the Jedi are like the Hindu gods. In fact, you may not know this, but James Cameron, in his movie Avatar, says his movie was based on one of the, the Hindu gods that he studied. And that's where the idea of Avatar came out, was from one of these Hindu gods. Now, here's the challenge with Hinduism. If you decided next week, you know what, I want to be a Hindu, your first problem would be, so what do I do? How, how do I practice Hinduism? And the reason that's a challenge is because if you're not raised in India, 
Hinduism is almost impossible for you to practice. If you're raised in a village of India, you have, uh, the village has its own God, and there's a, a calendar of events, and there's a series of things that you can do, but you can't transport that to other places. And this is why, out of Hinduism, came many different kinds of Eastern religions. And the reason is they were all trying to figure out different ways to practice the ideas of Hinduism. So that's how you practice Hinduism, is you develop one of these other ideas. And the major one, as I said, was Buddhism, or is Buddhism. It's the biggest. The founder, as I mentioned, was Siddhartha Gautama. He was actually a prince in northern India, so he grew up in Hinduism. He abandoned his family and went in search of spiritual truth. He was trying to figure out, how do you do this? And after six years, he was in despair. He sat under a tree. And it was under this tree, after a long period of time, that he became enlightened. He understood how to do this. And that's what, as I said, the word Buddha means, the enlightened one. He gained an understanding of how to escape the suffering in this world, and that became the, what is known in Buddhism as the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment. And this Eightfold Path, for the first time, gave Eastern religious ideas a clear set of things to do. Eightfold Path, here's eight things. Do these, this is how you practice the idea that God is everything, the pantheistic God. You know, if you remember what Luke said to Yoda, he basically said, this is impossible. And that's the challenge of Hinduism. It's really impossible to know what to do. So Buddhism is really what allowed Hindu thought to make its way outside of India itself. And it began to travel into the different parts of Asia and now to the West. So that's kind of a brief history. So let's look at the question. What is the problem? According to Eastern religions, the problem is the illusion of self. This is the main problem. Point number one, the illusion of self. And let me try to explain this as best I can. The reason we don't seem right and our world doesn't seem right is because none of it is real. It's an illusion. What we experience right now is an illusion created by us. The foundation of this illusion is the very notion that we are individuals, the notion of self. This notion of self is called the Atman, not the Ant-Man, but the Atman. The Atman, that's the notion of self. All reality that exists is Brahman. The force is everything. And so the idea that you're a separate self, that's, that's wrong. The notion of self, the Atman, is the problem. In Buddhism, uh, Siddhartha Gautama came up with four noble truths that really presents kind of the logic of, of how this thinking goes. So let me present these to you. The first noble truth is life is full of pain and suffering. I think we'd all agree with that one. Second noble truth is suffering is caused by desire. I think there's some truth in this too. In other words, if we didn't want, we didn't desire anything, then we wouldn't feel any pain when we didn't get what we wanted. So desire is what causes the struggles. And if we don't care, if we don't want anything, then we're not going to be upset. So the third noble truth is we have to eliminate all desires. We have to stop wanting the things that our self tells us that we want. The reason is because there is no you, there is no me, there is no I. 
There is no universe. It's all an illusion. There is nothing, therefore, to want. The fact that you want something means that you, you are believing that you're a separate being. You're an Atman. Number four, noble truth, is desire can be eliminated by the Eightfold Path. You know, that's the question. How do you eliminate desire? There, the Eightfold Path. These are the practices that illuminate you to the very notion that you are not a real person. Here's the Eightfold Path. I'll just say it quickly. We're not going to put it on the screen. These are the eight things. Right understanding, number one. Right thought. Right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Right effort. Right awareness. And right meditation. Now, there's a lot of thinking on each of those, but those are the categories. So let me summarize it this way. What's wrong with us is that we have desires that originate from this false notion that we exist as a self. And therefore, what's wrong with our world is just an extension of these individual desires of the self that get in the way of each other. So we bring suffering into our world because our desires put us in conflict with those who share the same illusion with us and therefore have competing desires. That's where conflict comes from. So if we could just get it into our heads and see that we're not really individuals with needs and desires, but rather part of Brahman, along with every other part in this world, then the suffering in the world would end, along with it, all of the conflicts in the world. So the ultimate goal then in Eastern thought, in Eastern religious thought, is to enter into the state of nirvana. Now, nirvana isn't a place. Sometimes I've heard people say, oh, nirvana, that's like the, the Buddhist heaven. It's like, no, dog kasa. Very different ideas. This is not just the Buddhist way of saying heaven. Nirvana is the moment when you cease to be a self. It's often described as a drop returning into the ocean. That's what nirvana is. It's not a place. It's a, an awareness. And as a drop... You know, if you're an individual drop, you still are under the illusion that you are separate, that you are a self, that you are an individual. But of course, once a drop returns to the ocean, you can't find that drop anymore. It's gone. It's no longer a separate water entity. It's just water. That's nirvana. Now, the most popular Buddhist today is the Dalai Lama. And that's because the, the plight of the Tibetan Buddhists that he leads from exile has captured a, a great deal of attention. And again, he's, he's become somewhat of a pop culture celebrity. Tibetan Buddhists believe that the Dalai Lama has actually attained enlightenment, just like the Buddha did. But he currently refuses to enter into nirvana so that he can continue to help the masses. That's what they believe about the Dalai Lama. So, number one, what's the problem? The illusion of self. Now, what is the answer? The answer is the elimination of self. Again, the term for this is enlightenment. So, here's the challenge. How do you do that? The challenge is this. The problem that Eastern religions have is the illusion is very convincing. I mean, this feels very real. And the things that I desire in this life feel very important to me, and same for you. I mean, for example, the love between my wife and I, 
That feels real. And the love that I have for my two children, that feels real. And their spouses, that feels real. And my grandkids, that feels very real. I mean, I, I just don't know how I could possibly, even if I wanted to, convince myself that my grandkids are not real and that the death of anyone I love is just an illusion and that that loss isn't real and it's not worthy of my real tears. That's, that's a tough thing to not only get your mind around, but to actually become convinced of. So all of Eastern religions are basically a, a specific set of strategies to convince you of this illusion over a long period of time, many lives. So these strategies revolve around the two most famous Hindu ideas, and that is the law of karma and reincarnation. Karma is the sum total of your life actions, good and bad. And if you don't liberate yourself from your karma and embrace your divinity, you are bound in this life. You will stay, stay stuck in your illusion and in the next life and the next life and on and on after that. Now, in the West, we think of karma as getting what you deserve in this life. That's not karma. Once again, dog, casa, very different ideas. This is probably the most common Hindu and Buddhist idea that I hear Christians say. They refer to the law of karma. It's very, you know, in the, in the New Testament, the book of Galatians says you reap what you sow. We often take that idea and put the word karma on it, but that's not what karma means. Karma, the law of karma is about getting in your next life, not now, but in your next life, the kind of life you've earned in this life. So when something bad happens to someone, you say, yeah, that's karma. It's like, no. You don't see karma until you see what kind of life form they become in the next life. That's when karma shows up, not in this life. And this is where karma is attached to the idea of reincarnation. Hindus do not believe that life is linear. In other words, life is not um, going from a beginning to an end point. Instead, they believe that it's a never-ending circle of life and death and rebirth until eventually nirvana. This circle is where you get the term circle of life from the Lion King. It's a, it's a Hindu concept, the circle of life. Your karma in this life will determine what life form you come back as, as human, animal, or maybe insect. So karma is, is about more than just moral improvement, becoming a better person. That's not really what karma is about. Karma is really about growing in your awareness that you are not a self and that your desires, which are the root of all wrong behavior, is the real problem. And so you have many lives to learn this and reduce your karma to the point at which you enter in nirvana. The self is such a stubborn and convincing feeling that it takes many lives to reach enlightenment. There is no Eastern religion that will tell you how many lives. The, the best that you can find is countless, countless number of lives, until you finally get over this illusion, this Atman of being a self. Now, yoga is one of the Hindu practices designed to help you towards enlightenment. Yoga literally means union with. And for the Hindu, of course, it's union with Brahman. 
Now, personally, I think a lot of the exercises in yoga are very helpful. But you really have to watch out for the idea, the ideas that are sometimes presented in yoga, and actually the words that you say. You see, in the West, we think our way to faith. We use logic to come to a decision about faith. And that's not the way the East works. In the East, you experience your way to faith. And so yoga is actually probably the most effective form of evangelism that the East has. It's how they can get people saying things and thinking ideas because they've experienced the benefits of the exercise and now they're saying stuff they don't really even know what it means. They're beginning to experience things. You may not know this, but the, the word om that sometimes you chant in yoga is believed by Hindus to be the primordial sound of Brahman. So I'm not saying you can't ever do yoga. I'm just saying if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, check out what the words mean. You probably don't want to be worshiping Brahman unknowingly. So that's the answer, the elimination of self. Now, lastly, what's the difference? What's the difference between Christianity and Eastern religions? Well, there obviously are many, but I think this is the most important difference, and that is God's grace. The Old Testament book of Jonah tells the story of the man whose name is actually on that book. So Jonah is sent to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh to tell them about the one true God. God sends Jonah to tell them about himself. Now in Nineveh, they believed at the time in a goddess called Asherah. And Asherah, the goddess Asherah, was actually the most popular religion of the time. And Jonah makes an interesting statement about this God idea and really all God ideas. Jonah 2.80 says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What he's saying is all of these different ideas about God get in the way of people accepting the offer of grace that the real God has given them. You know, the religions of the ancient world at this time were represented by idols that bore their image. And Jonah is saying that all of them have one thing in common. They all forfeit the grace that could be. They get people attached to and doing rituals of and doing practices of, and they forfeit. They don't encounter and accept the grace that God wants to offer them. Now, grace is simply defined as the love of God applied to our sin. And there is no possibility of grace in the Eastern religions because in the Eastern way of thinking, God is not a person. He is a force. And grace is personal. Grace is the love and the kindness offered by one person in response to the wrong done by another person. Grace is highly personal. Electricity forces, they can't offer grace. They just are. People, persons, offer grace. So in the Bible, God reveals himself not as a force. He is powerful, but he's not a force. He is a person. He is an all-powerful being that created humanity in his image so that we might have a real relationship with him. And so, according to the Bible, we are real. And this world is real. And God is real. The problem is not 
that we are under the illusion that this or ourselves is real. The problem is that we are under the illusion that we don't need God. And as image bearers, we can run off and do our own thing and run our own lives and be just fine. This is why we have all sinned against God, which is what is wrong with us and what is wrong with this world, according to the Christian perspective. But God's response to our sin is to offer us grace, forgiveness, help in Jesus Christ. He is the one, God in flesh, who paid the price of our sins to forgive us and then go to work on our lives, putting us back together, healing us, rebuilding us. In Romans 1.17, we read this, For in the gospel, the gospel, the word means good news. It's speaking of the good news of Jesus. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The the important word is from. This is a a righteousness that's from God. Every other religion that we're going to be looking at is a righteousness from us. It's not a righteousness from God. It's a bottom-up, do your best, do this, work your way up, climb out of the hole. Christianity is a righteousness from God. It's top-down. It's a hand-down to pull us up out of the pit. This is the major difference. Every other religion tells you here's what you must do to be right with God. It may be the eightfold path of Buddhism, maybe the five pillars of Islam we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, or it may be the sacrifices required by the goddess Asherah in Jonah's day. But common to all of them is a list of things that you must do in order to fix what is wrong with you and by extension what is wrong with this world. But grace begins with forgiveness. It is God saying, I'll make you right. That's the root of the word righteous. I'll make you right. God's grace says, this is the offer. Here's what you must accept, not what you must do. You must accept my hand reaching down to you to pull you up. You must accept it. I will not force it on you. Grace is personal. It must be accepted. Now, God's grace does not end with forgiveness. It begins with forgiveness. And it continues in the form of his ongoing, unearned kindness in our lives as he patiently works to forgive us again and again and to change us more and more into the kind of people that we really want to be and he wants us to be. So to cling to any of the religions, all of their human efforts, is to forfeit this grace, is to say, no, I got it. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this. I got the ladder, I'll climb out. I got it. And you forfeit the hand of God's grace. To forfeit is to give up or abandon what could have been yours. You know, if you you forfeit in a sporting competition, you, you just don't show up. You don't even try. You just don't show up. Christianity believes that the sin and the failure in our life can be met with the grace and the forgiveness and the power of God to change us. Christianity believes that eternity with God is not something that we have to earn, but something that is given to us freely in love if we will just come to God and accept his offer of a relationship. 
That is not the case. And I say this with great sadness. That is not the case for those who believe in karma and reincarnation. They are literally on a wheel, a cycle, where they, they don't know. They don't ever know if they've done enough to move up to the next life form or even what that next life form is. They don't know. In 2005, um, Bono from U2 talked about, gave an interview, he talked about his commitment to Christ as a part of that interview. And I want to put the quote that he said up here on there because he talks about karma. This is what he said, the one thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. For me, grace is really good news because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. We all know he's a good poet. This wasn't a poem, but this is really right. This is the main difference between Christianity and the Eastern religions. They offer us a very different choice, not a different set of words to say the same thing. No, a very different set of words to describe very different realities, very different choice, very different ideas. And the choice is this, karma or amazing grace. That's the choice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have been given and offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You alone could pay the price that we could never pay. We could never do enough. We could never ramp up a moral game high enough to climb out of the pit of our, our own sin, the choices of our own doing. And I pray for those in this room that have yet to reach out their hand to accept your offer of grace that they would do that. They would accept your grace and begin to experience your power that not only forgives but begins to pull them out of whatever pit they have dug themselves into. As Bono says, we've all done a lot of stupid stuff. And we thank you for your amazing grace. We pray this now in the name of the one who paid the price for that grace, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.